You're listening to The National, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. From The National, date Monday the 7th of September 2020, from the news section, Birmingham stabbings, man 27 arrested on suspicion of murder, piece by Angus Cochrane, multimedia journalist. A man has been arrested on suspicion of murder and seven counts of attempted murder following a series of stabbings in Birmingham. West Midlands Police said the 27-year-old suspect remains in custody after he was arrested at around 4am at an address in Selly Oak. The force declared a major incident after eight victims were stabbed during a rampage spanning some 90 minutes in the city centre in the early hours of Sunday. A 23-year-old man was killed in the attacks and a man and a woman, aged 19 and 32, remained critically in hospital after suffering serious stab wounds. Police launched a massive manhunt for the sole male attacker on Sunday and released CCTV footage of a man they said was wanted in suspicion of murder. But the force is also facing criticism of the, of the response to the attacks, including why the attacker was allowed to wander the city for as long as he did. Officers said they received the first call to Constitution Hill, north of the city centre, just after 12.30am, where a man had received a superficial injury. This was followed by a further call 20 minutes later to nearby Livery Street, next to Snow Hill Railway Station. A 19-year-old man was critically injured and a woman was also injured. An hour later at 1.50am, officers were called to Irving Street, to the south of the city centre, where a man died and another man suffered serious injuries. Ten minutes later, police were called to Hurst Street, in the heart of the city's gay village quarter, where a 32-year-old woman was seriously injured and two men received lesser injuries. Following the arrest, Birmingham Police Chief Commander Chief Superintendent Stephen Graham said, Officers worked through it yesterday and into the early hours of this morning in a bid to trace a man we believe responsible for these terrible crimes. We issued CCTV footage of the suspect and had a strong response from the public. I'd like to thank everyone who shared their appeal and to provide the information to the investigation. One line of inquiry ultimately led us to an address in the Selyok area this morning where a man was arrested. Clearly this is a crucial development but our investigation continues. And that article was by Angus Cochrane. The National Monday the 7th of September 2020 Comment section Why only those who live in Scotland should have a vote in IndyRef 2 by Ruth Wishart You know they are losing the argument when the folks who once said there would be no second independence referendum ever start fulminating instead about whom the electorate for such a vote should comprise The phraseology is instructive too I give you the profound thoughts of Andrew Neil veteran right-wing polemicist and BBC political pundit. He says the only people who should vote in a second indiref should be those born in Scotland. He closes this bold pronouncement with end of. Interesting wee phrase, end of, usually deployed by those whose arguments have run out of road, but the end of their tether is still in sight. 
Just the same, since that other part-time Scot, Michael Gove, finds the suggestion interesting, let us briefly indulge these jock-bashing Londoners. The Referendum Scotland Bill, passed some 15 months ago at Holyrood, determined that most people over 16 who lived in Scotland should be allowed to vote on their country's future, adopted or not. This embraces people of all nationalities, including refugees and asylum seekers, while affirming the voting rights of EU and Commonwealth passport holders. Lest there be the smallest doubt about who has the franchise and who doesn't, the framers of this bill append no fewer than 55 pages of explanatory notes. By no stretch was this legislation compiled on the back of a fag packet, unlike, to take an example completely at random, the UK government's Covid strategy. So ask yourself, does a Syrian with a thriving bakery on Butte have a greater stake in Scotland's future than a London-based journalist who devotes much of his commentary to the incapacity of Scots to run their own affairs? More generally, are not all those new Scots who come to our country to settle here, work and pay taxes here, raise families here and contribute their skills to our economy, the most pertinent people to decide on the future of their adopted home? Do not all these Indigenous Scots who have chosen to stay and work in this country have more skin in the game than those who now reside in other countries? Just last week we learned that for the first time more people are coming to live and work in Scotland than those departing in the other direction. I'm very well aware that many Scots felt they had little choice other than going elsewhere, most often London, to advance their careers. That's their choice, sometimes a necessary one, and I respect it. And if they choose to come home in later years, they will be welcomed back onto the voters' register. Yet the manoeuvring to broaden the franchise has zipped to do with it giving a vote to young Scots making their way in another world. It's a simple numbers game to add in the almost 800,000 votes from Scots resident elsewhere in the UK in the hope of boosting the no vote. One newspaper even sent a reporter to Corby, where many Scots steelworkers migrated for work in the hope that their sons and daughters would explain why they should have the vote just as soon as they could find Edinburgh on a map. They held a mock Scottish independence referendum in this Northamptonshire town in 2014. 414 voted no and just 162 yes. They also voted two for one for Brexit, just the kind of voters Messrs Neil and Gove would cherish. Compare and contrast the Scottish Government insisting that English-born folk living here should all be on the register, despite a majority having voted no last time round, though I suspect a fair few won't again. The salient fact is that none of this should be about ethnicity. It's about our future and who has the right to shape it. And nobody is more relevant in this context than the young Scots who will be doing that shaping when the rest of us are pushing up the daisies. Not at all, incidentally, the youngest demographic is the most enthusiastic about independence. There are Scots-born folk all over the globe. The Scottish diaspora often remains enthusiastic about setting up Caledonian societies, running country dance classes, orchestrating annual Highland Games, and bowing to no one in their ability to recall whole chunks of burns. In fact, they will do almost anything to laud the traditions of the old country, except for living in it. I can just about live with New York's Tartan Week, even if one of the founding fathers was a Southern Republican senator with dubious views on racial segregation. It at least has a contemporary emphasis on boosting Scottish trade. It doesn't mean that Scots-born but now committed Americans should decide our future any more than Scots-born expats quaffing their whiskey and iron brew in southern Spain.
There is a logic and clarity in having the referendum franchise mirror the normal electoral one, whatever the would-be gerrymandering tribes might argue. And gerrymandering is exactly what they're about. They may lack the bombast of Trump and the latter's cavalier regard for the laws of the land, yet make no mistake they're already in full campaign mode and the manufactured debate over voting is just an extension of their current ambitions to dilute devolution into impotent irrelevance. If you can bear it, the website of the Secretary for State of Scotland is quite instructive and has not changed since posted in 2014. It says, and I quote, the UK government is not neutral on the issue of referendum. It has a clear policy that it wishes to see Scotland remain part of the UK. It adds, the civil service's role is to support the elected government of the day and implement its policies. While the referendum is politically contentious, it is correct that civil servants carry out their duties on this issue as they would any other government policy. This applies equally to policy and media work, including social media. You might think someone would have sought to update the site, but then if you're expecting another referendum vote, why bother? You are listening to The National, recorded on Monday the 7th of September, the comments section. Freeport plan for Scott City should be shunned and this is why. This article is by George Caravan. Dear John, I, for one, have been admiring the seriousness and passion with which you have set about leading the SNP administration in Dundee Council and the efforts you have put into creating jobs in the city. I am aware of the tremendous handicaps your administration faces, especially the swinging cuts to Dundee's municipal budget. That said, I am dismayed that you may be thinking of supporting the bid that Fourth Port LTD are making to the Tory government in London to make Dundee the site of one of ten so-called free ports announced by the UK Treasury last year. As I will explain, the FP project is a Trojan horse for slashing taxes, reducing environmental protection and workers' rights, limiting planning rules and ultimately stealing jobs from other parts of the UK and Europe. The FP is nothing more than neoliberalism on steroids and Dundee should have nothing to do with it. First, a word about Fourth Ports Limited. Bizarrely, this company is owned by one of Canada's biggest pension managers which also controls a string of major European airports and airliner leasing companies, which means post-Covid it is desperate for cash flow. Fourth Ports itself is chaired by the ubiquitous Lord Smith of Kelvin. He of the post-referendum Smith Commission these days Fourthport is as much a poverty developer as a dock management firm. The company's revenues in 2019 were £239 million, on which it made a whacking operating profit of £90 million, or 38%. Why is Fourthport so interested in the Freeport scheme? Answer. The less regulation and tax, the more profit. Of course, Charles Hammond, chief executive of Fourthport, Pretend it is all about attracting inward investment and regenerating the Dundee economy. And I do note that the pre-COVID unemployment rate in Dundee was running at 5.5% to a Scottish average of 3.7%. I can see the need to be pragmatic about creating jobs, but in this case, Dundee is being sold a very large pig in neoliberal poke. In the first place, fourth ports have had 
a more advanced proposal for a freeport at its Tilbury faculty near London. It is unlikely that the Treasury will grant fourth ports to freeport franchises, so why spend money on two bids? One suspects that Lord Smith is too cute an operator to bung in. A freeport application only in England, lest he get flack for ignoring Scotland. Smith likes to play an insider's game north of the border. So the Dundee proposal is either a bluff or Smith and Hammond cynically are hedging their bet. John, please be aware you don't get sucked in. But suppose Dundee was successful in winning Freeport's status. What exactly does the Tory government think FPS will achieve? Freeport's will be considered legally outside the UK for customs purposes, which means goods and raw materials can enter and exit the port without red tape or tariffs. It also means the companies creating manufacturing plants will inside the zone will operate under looser tax planning and labour laws than in the UK proper. In essence, Freeport will be private enclaves welcome to the Dundee as a modern version of Tortuga, the 17th century pirate port in Hispaniola. Whose bright idea was this? Answer, Chancellor Sunak himself. Back in 2016, when he was a newbie MP and trying to get noticed, Sunak published a report on Freeport for the Right Wing Centre for Policy Studies. A former hedge fund manager, Sunak, was anxious to display his pro-Brexit neoliberal credentials. Now Chancellor, it was only a matter of time before he ensured his Freeport ideas became reality. Sunak got his inspiration from China, where the local version of Freeport helped transform a backward peasant economy into a capitalist exporting superpower. According to Sunak, local property taxes, corporate income taxes and employment taxes were all lowered as well as customs duties. In order to attract foreign direct investment, FPS account for 20% of China's GDP, 30 million jobs and around half of all FDI. What's not to like? Actually a lot. The Chinese freeport model was a disaster for the environment and we are all frying as a result. Chinese freeports are also the global center for smuggling counterfeit goods. Most of the new jobs were filled by herding millions of young female peasants off the land in central China and decanting them into dairy dormitories in the coastal freeports. Meanwhile, millions of existing American industrial workers were thrown on the scrap heap as their employers were transferred production to the Chinese freeports. As a result, we got Trump. This is the true hocus pocus with freeports. They only shift jobs geographically. They don't create new ones. John, that will be true in Dundee. Companies move production from high tax areas to the low tax zones. Why wouldn't they? The Tory model of Freeport is designed specifically to steal jobs from the EU. But that will only bring European retaliation and the loss of Scottish and UK jobs elsewhere. At the same time, by pitting coastal ports against urban manufacturing zones, the Tories will use Freeports to discipline the workforce everywhere and make local authorities compete through lower council tax. It will be a race to the bottom for everyone, including Dundee. Which raises the obvious question of where free ports fit with independence. Would an indie Scottish government honour the neoliberal nonsense for Dundee, being free of customs, normal and environmental and labour regulation? I certainly hope not, in which case, assuming independence comes in the short term, pursuing a Dundee free port is a waste of space. What is the alternative? The SNP government has already set up an embryo Scottish National Investment Bank to raise capital investment levels and create jobs. Unfortunately, 
The resources of the SNIB are as yet too small to do the job effectively, but there are a host of ways of boosting the bank's financial resources rather than trying to tempt foreign investment through the dubious blandishment of a free port. For instance, rather than flog off to private investors some £3 billion of public green assets, they should be transferred to the SNIB. That would give the bank a huge portfolio against which to borrow. John, you're quoted as saying, the Freeport initiative is really interesting idea and it has potential benefits for more broadly for the city. But think through the logic of your argument. If lower taxes and deregulation are what create jobs, why not extend these benefits to the whole of Scotland? Why not abolish all tax and regulation? The answer is obvious. Without taxes, there is no insurance or training to run the economy, never mind an NHS. And without regulation, we would still be sending children up chimneys. John, please thank again. Surely our vision for an independent Scotland is bolder and better than creating another Tortuga. This article is by George Caravan. Recorded from the National, 7th of September 2020. Is this the end for Scottish treasure at the Waverley after pier crash? Martin Hannan. What's the story? The paddle steamer Waverley crashed into Brodick Pier on Arran on Thursday, with a total number of injured people put at 24 yesterday. Fortunately, none of the injured was reported to be in a life-threatening condition. Witnesses spoke of some of the 213 passengers and 26 crew being flung forward violently in the collision, which happened just after 5pm and caused a major alert for the emergency services. With the stricken vessel unable to move, Calmac Ferries stepped in to organise a ferry sailing back to the mainland for those passengers not hospitalised. What happened? There is extensive damage to its bows and the management announced late on Thursday that the remainder of her sailing season would be abandoned. The Marine Accident Investigation Branch, MAIB, confirmed yesterday that a formal inquiry had begun to find out exactly what happened. MAIB tweeted, We've started an investigation into the contact of the passenger vessel Waverley with the pier at Brodick, Isle of Arran, Scotland, yesterday, resulting in passenger injuries and damage to the vessel. It was described by MAIB as contact by passenger vessel with a pier on arrival at Brodick, Isle of Arran, resulting in passenger injuries and damage to the vessel. Speculation is mounting that the collision may have had something to do with the fact that the Waverley had recently undergone a major refit. She is also known for its wide turning circle, while paddles are possibly not the most accurate form of propulsion, even if they do lend her all the considerable charm. It has not had a lot of luck recently, has it? It actually had a lot more luck than the original P.S. Waverley, which was sunk while on a minesweeping duties during the Second World War. As long ago as 1974, the current Waverley was struck by problems with its boilers, and these have recurred again and again. Two years ago, they got so bad that the Waverley was taken out of service for a major refit costing more than £2 million. She has also had problems with trying to negotiate dry land. In 1977, it struck rocks off Danoon and only stayed afloat because it had been given extra protection in case it was needed for future minesweeping duties. In 2009, Waverley collided with the breakwater at Danoon with 700 passengers on board. 12 of whom suffered minor injuries. The latest refit had only just ended early last month, when it returned to service under the cloud of coronavirus with special safety precautions in place throughout the shift. 
A short history, please. There is an ongoing dispute about whether ships should be called she or it, but it's hard to think of the Waverley as anything other than the grand old lady of the Clyde. Built for the London and North Eastern Railway Line, LNER, and launched in 1946 from Point Hiss Shipyard by A&J Engels of Glasgow. She took the name of the former P.S. Waverley in tribute, Waverley being derived from the series of novels of that name by Sir Walter Scott. LNER sailed Waverley from Craig and Doran Pier near Helensborough, a stop on their line which doubled as their port on the Clyde for Waverley and other vessels on the Dune the Water circuit. After being taken into the Nationalised Rail Service in 1948, she mostly sailed to Arakur on Loch Long. Run by the Caledonian Steam Packet Service, Waverley transferred to the newly established Caledonian McBrain Limited in 1973, but the company found on a full inspection that the steamer needed massive refurbishment and they sold her to the Paddle Steamer Preservation Society, PSPS, for the sum of £1 on the condition that they renovated her. Waverley looked likely to become a static museum piece, but with her engines and boilers refurbished, passengers are able to view the engines while in motion. She began a new phase in a career that has now lasted more than 70 years. No one really expected Waverley to go back to seagoing duties, but after that successful refurbishment, she began sailing on the Clyde and then made excursions around Britain. Her typical year would see Waverley on the Clyde in the summer, followed by six weeks of excursions on the Bristol Channel and the Thames before returning to her home berth in Glasgow. The multiple ownership of the vessel has seen her decked out in several different libraries over the years, and she now has the original LNER colours of red, white and black on her funnels. Will she sail again? Much will depend on the MAIB inquiry, which will be followed by a full inspection of her seaworthiness. She usually spends part of the winter in dry dock, so only then will we know if Waverley can sail again. We should all hope the Scottish treasure survives. From the National Date, Monday the 7th of September 2020. From the news section, Scottish independence, calls ramped up over fears of no deal Brexit. By Kathleen Nutt, journalist. Ian Blackford has said only independence can protect Scotland's place in Europe after it emerged Boris Johnson is planning to rip up the agreement he signed with the EU, increasing the risk of a no-deal Brexit. The SNP's Westminster leader spoke out following reports the Prime Minister was gearing up to crash out of the trade block at the end of the year. He also hit out in response to the Prime Minister's claim that crashing out of the EU with no deal would be a good outcome and the news of Tory plans to pass legislation overriding with the Withdrawal Treaty. Blackford said the Tory plan showed Johnson cannot be trusted and was threatening the Scottish and UK economy with a catastrophic blow. Boris Johnson's reckless plans for the hardest of Brexits would be devastating for Scotland, causing lasting damage to Scottish jobs and the economy in the middle of a pandemic, said Blackford. By threatening to undermine the UK's international treaty obligations and impose a catastrophic no-deal Brexit in Scotland against our will, the Prime Minister is proving he cannot be trusted and is underlining the need for Scotland to become an independent country. He added, Scotland has been completely ignored by Westminster throughout the Brexit process. It is increasingly clear that the UK will now believe in the EU with either a very bad deal or no deal at all, 
either of which would be a disaster for Scotland. With the Tories hardening their Brexit campaigns and threatening Scotland with a power grab, it's clearer than ever that the only way to protect Scotland's economic interests and our place in Europe is to become an independent country. A series of recent polls has put support for independence over 50%, with one survey last month saying 55% of Scots would now back a yes vote. Last week, the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said she would publish a draft bill before the holiday election next May, setting out the terms, the timing and the question to be posed in a new independence referendum. And that piece was by Kathleen Nutt. Recorded from the National, 8th of September 2020, Seven Good Ideas, Virtual Edinburgh Kilt Walk and Glasgow's Transport Museum, Nansport. 1. Edinburgh City Arts Centre is to reopen its doors to the public next Saturday with a full range of new safety measures in place to ensure the safety of visitors and staff. The gallery reopens with two new exhibitions, City Arts Centre at 40, Highlights from the City Arts Art Collection, making the City Arts Centre's 40th anniversary and Bright Shadows, Scottish art in the 1920s. Widely recognised as being one of the finest in the country, the city's collection numbers more than 5,000 artworks. Book a visit here, www.edinburghmuseums.org.uk forward slash venue forward slash city dash art dash centre. 2. Registration has been opened for an innovative online programme of workshops aimed at generating new creative content in these times of COVID-19. Delivered by the Cumnock Trust as part of the musical celebration of the Coalfields Community Project, workshops will run from September to December and are free, limited to 50 per session. They feature people prominent in photography, literature, music and conservation such as Chris Packham, Alexander McCall Smith, Colin Pryor, Michael Simmons Robert and Pete Stollery. www.thecumnocktrust.com 3. Riverside, Glasgow's award-winning transport museum, has now reopened after the lockdown and is still free, but tickets have to be booked in advance, with the latest block issued on Thursday. Visitors can see more than 3,000 objects on display, with everything from skateboards to locomotives, paintings to prams and cars to a stormtrooper www.glasgolife.org.uk forward slash museums forward slash venues forward slash riversides dash museum. 4. The Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art is also now open again and its current exhibition, which focuses on the theme of time, highlights the work of Scottish artist Katie Patterson. Born in Glasgow, Patterson is considered one of the leading artists of her generation. Her work explores deep time, the cosmos and the place of humans in relation to these phenomena. Time appears as both a subject and a process of making and works by three other artists, Darren Almond, Shona McNaughton and Lucy Raven. Visits can be booked on www.nationalgalleries.org forward slash visit forward slash Scottish dash national dash gallery dash modern dash art. 5. The search for a lost castle, a virtual walk looking at the archaeological and historical remains and a presentation of later prehistoric forts and farms all feature in an online heritage festival which is being held this year in place of Ethlosian's traditional archaeology and local history fortnight. It's billed as an exciting opportunity to celebrate East Lothian's heritage in new ways 
and safely explore historic buildings and archaeological sites without leaving home. The programme includes virtual guided tours, presentations, films and information all about the archaeology in the area. www.digitalscotland.com forward slash events forward slash east dash Lothian dash online dash heritage dash festival. 6. Charity fundraisers are a hardy bunch and not easily deterred from their mission, not even by a pandemic. As a result of COVID-19, Edinburgh Kilt Walk cannot take place in its usual form, but is going virtual this weekend, September 11th to 13th. Those who can sign up can take on any Kilt Walk-inspired challenge they wish. Go for a walk, a cycle, jump on a trampoline, or even a family scavenger hunt. All cash raised will receive a 50% top-up from the Hunters Foundation, up to a limit of £5,000 per fundraiser, or donor across all 2020 Kilt Walk events www.thekiltwalk.co.uk forward slash events forward slash virtual dash kiltwalk 7. Scotland's seas cover 462,263 square kilometres, more than six times the land area. To celebrate the Year of Coasts and Waters, an exhibition currently on at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh explores the country's diverse sea life and many threats facing it. Visitors should book a free timed entry visit. www.nms.ac.uk forward slash National Museum of Scotland. Recorded from the National, 8th of September 2020. Rest and be thankful to reopen after more than a month of closure. Xander Richards. The A83 Rest and Be Thankful will reopen today after almost five weeks of closure. The road, which runs from Loch Lomond to the southern end of the Kintyre Peninsula, has been closed since heavy downpours caused a landslip of almost 6,000 tonnes of debris on August 4th. The debris blocked both the A83 and the fastest alternative route, the Old Military Road, OMR, forcing drivers to follow a 60-mile diversion. The OMR opened four days later on August 8th after a helicopter, working with a team of 42, removed almost 2,000 tonnes of debris from the road. Now the A83 will also reopen following more than a month of round-the-clock work, according to Eddie Ross from Bear Scotland, which is responsible for managing and maintaining some of the country's most important roads. Ross added, Teams will continue work on the A83 once the road reopens, with further mitigation measures being installed at the bottom of the steep channel next to the roadside to create further protection for the A83. Work has also begun at the next permanent catch pit, further along the A83. Together, these measures will help contribute to the additional resilience on the A83. Scotland Transport Secretary Michael Matheson said he understood locals' frustration with the A83's frequent closures, adding, I realise people are looking for a long-term solution to dealing with landslips. I have instructed officials at Transport Scotland to accelerate our work to consider infrastructure options for the A83. Rest and be thankful is the highest point on the A83, separating Glen Kinglas from Glen Crow, and has an extremely high risk of landslips, which have been made worse in recent years by heavy rainfall. Recorded from the National, 9th of September 2020. Dark Island show Bannon, Scotching TV Myths with 7th Series. Christine Patterson. 
Gaelic drama Bannon is busting TV myths about Highland life, according to the producer of hit sitcom The Inbetweeners. Chris Young helped bring the Channel 4 comedy to life before doing the same for Sky-based Bannon, which began running on BBC Alba in 2014. Its dark seven series will begin on September 21st and will cover disturbing issues including the sharing of explicit images online by school pupils as well as the toxic effects of long-buried family secrets and the devastating impact of cancer. Young, founder and managing director of series producer Young Films, says the series is telling new stories about contemporary life in the Highlands and Islands. He said, Bannon goes into the complex area of how young people use the internet to explore their growing sexuality and all the risks that can come with that. TV dramas still tend to have a very cosy and nostalgic view of life in the Highlands and Islands, but we wanted to show that contemporary issues such as online sex are just as relevant and dramatic here as they are in any urban setting. We're exploring new territory and telling new stories. The internet is a significant part of life in the Highlands and Islands, and has transformed many people's lives for the better. However, there is a downside because it can also bring danger. Filmed in Sleet, Bannon centres around the community of Camus, with teenager Kay amongst the residents. This series shall be the centre of a major storyline as she sends intimate mess images to a stranger on the internet who claims to be a teenage boy, but who is not what he seems. Meredith Brooke, who plays the character, says filming was hard and brutal, but she was drawn in by the importance of the material. She said, When I first got told about the storyline for the series, I felt a mix of excitement and anxiety. I was very lucky to be working with such talented actors and directors when dealing with scenes that required feelings of raw emotion, sympathy and anger. I was so absorbed in the role that I ended up shedding tears even during rehearsals. Bannon producer Sarah Jane Campbell commented, We dealt with some very emotionally challenging storylines this year, which her cast and crew handled with great sensitivity. It's such a pleasure to see our young cast developing along with the storylines and so rewarding to discover new actors who bring so much to Bannon. Viewers will experience a whole range of emotions as they follow the events which rock the community of campus. Series 7 begins on Monday, September 21st at 9pm. From the national date Wednesday the 9th of September 2020, from the politics section, Douglas Ross blasted for backing Boris Johnson's plan to ditch Brexit deal by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. Douglas Ross has been lambasted after suggesting Boris Johnson's plan to renege on last year's Brexit deal is responsible. The Prime Minister is expected to override parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, part of the 2019 Withdrawal Agreement, with new powers in the UK Internal Market Bill. European leaders have condemned the farcical move, while Michael Russell warned the UK is now hurtling towards a disastrous Brexit outcome. Ross, who had previously vowed to stand up to Westminster if he believed it was acting against the interests of Scots, was slammed by the SNP after he broke his silence in Johnson's plans last night. The Scottish Tory leader claimed during an STV interview that a no-deal Brexit could offer a great benefits to Scotland and suggested pointing to the Nagan and the Withdrawal Agreement was responsible. Speaking on the Scotland Tonight, he denied that a no-deal Brexit would be disastrous for the Union. 
The Prime Minister has been clear at the time frame of both the UK and EU negotiators, and if we don't reach an agreement through talks this month, and by the next EU Council on October 15th, then we have have to have that deadline, Ross said. But I'm reassured from everything I heard from the Prime Minister that he and the UK Government are determined to get a new deal as we leave the transition period, and I think there is a lot of effort now to ensure that the EU see the strong position that we're putting forward, and the fact we're simply calling for what has been delivered in other deals around the world. On the suggestion from Downing Street that a new deal withdrawal could be beneficial for the UK, Ross said, Well, there are obviously opportunities to trade freely around the world. There's great benefits to our fishing industry in the northeast of Scotland and many parts of the country for fishermen and fishing communities to move forward and constrain from the hated common fisheries policy that we have seen for the past 40 years. Asked about Johnson's plans to renege on the withdrawal agreement, the Scottish Tory leader commented, I think Number 10 and the Prime Minister have been very clear that these are small clarifications that are effectively a safety net. We are still continuing the discussion with the Joint Council and European Union, but it is right that we prepare for all eventualities and it's important that these small corrections and clarifications are in place to preserve the peace we have so rightfully cherished in Northern Ireland. The Mori MP added that plans to overwrite the customs deal for Northern Ireland and new legislation are responsible. Areas that were always going to have to be negotiated through the mechanisms in place, he told the STV. I still think this can be done and efforts are underway to ensure that it's agreed in that way, but it's also responsible of the government to look at a safety blanket and backup measures should the first choice in areas we're negotiating on at the moment prove to be unsuccessful. SNP MSP Tom Arthur accused Ross of hypocrisy and condemned him for entertaining the idea of a no-deal Brexit. He told The National, Businesses simply can't afford to prepare for a no-deal Brexit during a global pandemic. There is no way that any politician with a regard for Scottish jobs and livelihoods could or should support that proposal. It beggars belief that Douglas Ross is a brass neck to cause parties' plans to recall prospects of securing a deal with the EU and reimpose a hard border on the island of Ireland. Responsible. It's high time the Tories put their responsibility to the economy, jobs and families struggling through this period ahead of their damaging Brexit agenda. Talks between the EU and UK resume today, with Johnson reportedly set to tell Brussels' top Brexit negotiator, Michelle Barnier, that the withdrawal agreement doesn't make sense. According to the Telegraph, the Prime Minister believes the deal he signed off on less than a year ago is contradictory. And that piece was by Angus Cochrane. Recorded from The National, 9th of September 2020, Neil Oliver claims he is a lightning rod in war with independent supporters. Emerald Tool. Neil Oliver has claimed he has been a lightning rod in a war with Scottish independent supporters since 2014. The historian says he feels like he is in a war of attrition with nationalists, despite his very middle-of-the-road views about the Union. In an interview with the Mail on Sunday, he said, I feel as if... I'm in this entrenched position in a war of attrition. Since 2014, I've been a lightning rod for the nationalists because I spoke up in favour of the United Kingdom. It's become an article of faith now that if you're truly Scottish, you would vote for independence, and therefore, if you're in favour of the continuation of the United Kingdom, then you are not Scottish. That's just become a binary position that's just being pushed by a section of the population. But I grew up British and Scottish. I never gave it a second thought. He went on. 
The two terms are interchangeable to me, and I never thought I was making any kind of political statement in any of it. Oliver sparked outrage last month, he claimed Boris Johnson was forced to cut his trip to Scotland short over safety concerns. Scottish Nationalists believes the comment to be directed at them, and particularly Ian Blackford. But the National revealed the PM's location was leaked to the Daily Mail by his own security team. Oliver added, With Boris Johnson, no one except him and his own people knew why he left Scotland early to return to London. But there was certainly a perception that he'd been scared or chased out of Scotland, and I thought, I don't want that even that suggestion about this country. Oliver is due to step down as NTS president this month. It came after the TV presenter liked an anti-Black Lives Matter tweet and declared his love for controversial historian David Starkey. Oliver insisted he had always planned to do mo- no more than a three-year stint at the head of the Heritage Organisation. From the National Date, Wednesday the 9th of September 2020, from the politics section, Nicola Sturgeon makes coronavirus transmission plea to under-40s by Andrew Learmonth, journalist. Nicola Sturgeon has urged younger people to think about their loved ones, warning them not to fall for the dangerous delusion that the under-40s don't need to worry about coronavirus. The First Minister's plea came as Scotland recorded three deaths of patients who tested positive for COVID, the highest number since June the 30th. In total, there were 176 cases confirmed on Monday, representing 2.3% of all people tested. Just two weeks ago, the positivity rate was less than 1%. Most of the cases, 91, were in the Greater Glasgow and Clyde Health Board. Another 32 were in neighbouring Lancashire, while 16 were in Lothian and 8 were recorded in Ayrshire and Arran. The remaining 29 cases are spread across the other seven mainland health boards. Speaking during the Scottish Government's coronavirus briefing, Sturgeon said the majority of the big spike of cases in Scotland were among people aged 18 to 39. She wanted to take head on the argument that because the virus is, at the moment, infecting more young people than her own people, and because we're not seeing a sharp rise in serious illness or death, that we don't need to worry about this. She added, that is, in my view, potentially a really dangerous delusion. Firstly, the risk of a young person getting seriously ill or dying is thankfully lower, but it is not zero, and I would ask people of all ages to remember that. Second, we're seeing warning signs here already. I have reported three deaths today. That's the first time I've had to do that in more than two months, so we should listen to the warning signals that are already here. And, thirdly, we don't live in an entirely generationally segregated ways. If transmission becomes established in the younger population, it will eventually reach the older, more vulnerable population. To younger people, please think about your loved ones, and to older people, be even more vigilant with hygiene and distancing if you're spending time with young relatives who might be in pubs and restaurants. Sturgeon said that gatherings in people's homes were the biggest source of coronavirus spreading in the west of Scotland, rather than the hospitality sector. But Linda de Decker, NHS Glasgow Greater and College Director of Public Health, said that most of the city's new positive tests were linked to pubs and restaurants. She warned Glaswegians to play by the rules or risk seeing bars shut again. De Decker said, Nobody wants to go back into lockdown. 
Nobody wants to be forced into only seeing friends and getting a screen again. So, if we want to continue to meet our friends and family to enjoy a night out, then all we need to do is play by the rules. And that article was by Andrew Learmonth. From the National Date, Wednesday the 9th of September 2020, from the news section, Fury is Tory's order for saltires to be removed from Scottish High Street. This article is an exclusive by Phil Johnson. Residents of a Borters Gateway town are up in arms after their local Tory-run council ordered the removal of six Scotland flags from the High Street. Popular with visitors to Coldstream, the Salters have been flown in previous years without any issues by local businessman David Shepherd, who installs them each summer at his own cost to add a splash of colour to the town centre. They were put up again this year on July 31st to mark the town's annual civil week, even though the celebrations had to be cancelled due to COVID-19. But Scottish Borders Council, SBC, has now ordered Shepherd to remove them after receiving a complaint that the flags are flying in council property. Shepherd said, I've done it in previous years without complaint and there's been no issues. I've never had a negative comment before. The complaint seems to be that the flags are flying in council property. They told me data protection means they can't say who complained. It sounds a bit political to me. A gateway to Scotland, Coldstream lies in the north bank of the River Tweed and is known as the first true border town. Motorists crossing the bridge are greeted by Scotland welcomes you sign. Shepherd's Six Flags were again fixed to railings in the High Street at the entrance to Henderson Park, which overlooks the Tweed, with views across the border into Northumberland. In previous years, Shepherd has had as many as 11 flags flying from the same spot. He added, I did it again this year to add a bit of colour and identity to Coldstream, which is in Scotland after all. For Civic Week, after Townsfolk had to endure months of dealing with Covid. Like in previous years, the flags, woodposts, paint, gold tops and installation were done entirely at my own cost. I had seen many people taking photos of them, presumably to mark their arrival to Coldstream in Scotland. While I was taking them down, three other tourists, tourists were taking photos. The flags are not a political statement and are not there to offend in any way. I've been taken aback by the response. I expected a few comments, but I've had hundreds. SNP councillor Donald Moffat, who lives in the town, said It is sad that someone has to take offence and ridiculous that they have been taken down. A lot of people are disappointed. I know a lot of tourists expected to see the flag when they came across the bridge into Scotland. My wife is English and I have family and friends who loved seeing flags like this when they came to visit. I don't know what the explanation is. The council ruling has been heavily criticised on Facebook. Bow Daniels posted I am English and live here and they bring out some colour to the town. There are some really pathetic people out there. Gail Elliott described the situation as unbelievable, while Beth Scobie wrote, What a sad world we are living in, especially the SPC. Shocking. Sandra Hoy added, I don't understand why anyone would have a problem with them at all. It brightens the place up. A Scottish Borders Council spokesperson said, these flags were erected slash attached to a council property with no prior permission. The council has therefore contacted the person involved and asked for them to be removed. And that piece was an exclusive by Phil Johnson.
from the National Date Wednesday the 9th of September 2020 from the news section. Jobs in Scotland continue to fall but rate decreases by Craig Meehan. Permanent and temporary job placements continued to fall in Scotland during August according to new data. Figures from the Royal Bank of Scotland show a seven-month trend of reduction in job placements, although the rate is reducing. Permanent placements were 4.4 points behind last month, while temporary were two points behind July. The trend between Scotland and the UK diverged in August, as temporary jobs rose sharply at the national level. Sebastian Burnside, Chief Economist at Royal Bank of Scotland, said, Conditions across the Scottish labour market remain unchallenging in August, with recruiters signalling further reductions in permanent placements and temporary billings. That said, the rates have declined further, with permanent appointments falling at the softest pace since February, while the reduction in temp billings was only marginal. The supply of permanent staff rose at the quickest pace since April 2009, whilst temp candidate availability also increased markedly. With demand and supply imbalances ongoing, there were further downward pressure in pay. Overall, the data are encouraging to the context of the unprecedented drops in hiring activity recorded in April through to June. But the labour market is yet to begin its, its recovery and may require further support measures in order to fully recover from the effects of the pandemic. Recruiters in Scotland signalled a reduction in average salaries awarded to permanent new joiners in August. A fifth consecutive monthly reduction in average early rates of pay for short-term staff in Scotland was recorded during August. The data was collected from about 100 Scottish recruitment and employment consultancies during August. And that article was by Craig Meehan. From the National, date Wednesday the 9th of September 2020, from the news section, Keir Starmer to launch TV briefings to compete with Downing Street, by Laura Webster, multimedia journalist. The Labour leader will soon host regular press conferences in an effort to draw focus from Downing Street's planned TV briefings, it has emerged. Keir Starmer's conferences, which are expected to be held monthly, come as number 10 plot the whole general press briefing starting in the autumn. A Labour source said, Unlike the Prime Minister, Keir doesn't duck the difficult questions or hide from the press. That's why we're up for doing regular press conferences. It was previously reported that UK ministers were seeking an experienced broadcaster to become the new face of the government at the briefings, which follow on from Downing Street's daily COVID-19 conferences. Those now take place intermittently, with one planned for later today as the UK continues to see an increase in coronavirus cases. When there were Prime Ministers, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown held monthly press briefings. David Cameron did the same thing after being elected, but this was stopped after a short period. News that Labour will be hosting press briefings could be awkward for the Scottish Party, of which some members have been outspoken about the First Minister's coronavirus conferences. Deputy Leader Jackie Bailey wrote to BBC Scotland Director Donald McKinnon to complain about the broadcaster in conferences, while Labour peer George Fox said he had submitted a formal complaint about them. Scottish Labour have been contacted for comment. And that piece is by Laura Webster. From the Glasgow Times, date Wednesday the 9th of September 2020. From the politics section, 
Michael Russell hits back at Tory claims Brexit talks were undermined by Gregor Young, journalist. Scotland's Constitution Secretary has denied the SNP government undermined the UK's Brexit talks by urging both sides to compromise on the fishing sector. UK government trade officials are said to be furious at the Scottish government, claiming ministers intervened in negotiations and made the talks harder. Regular discussions, separate to the Brexit negotiations, are held between First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, other UK government ministers and the EU's Chief Brexit Negotiator, Michel Barnier. According to the Times, sources at Westminster say they are called out their Holyrood counterparts in an official catch-up between the Scottish and UK governments for apparently saying both sides need to move a bit. A UK government source told the newspaper, This behaviour does not just undermine the UK government, it undermines Scotland and its fishermen by stopping the UK from speaking as one voice to say that we want to be an independent coastal state once again. Asked about the story, Michael Russell told the BBC Scotland he will continue to call for compromise. He said, I think that the UK is saying that we've attempted to disrupt those negotiations. They've actually been able to do that themselves without any difficulty. They didn't need our help to do so. But what actually has happened is part of the normal conversation that the Scottish Government has had with the EU over the past four years and that at all times we've stressed the need to compromise on both sides. Negotiations over fishing rights have proved to be a contentious area in Brexit and trade talks with a key pillar of the campaign focusing on leaving the common fisheries policy and regaining sovereignty and control of the waters around the UK. Currently, fishing fleets of every country involved have full access to each other's waters, apart from the first 12 nautical miles out from the coast, with quotas set each year about how much they can catch. And that article was by Gregor Young. From the National, date Wednesday the 9th of September 2020, from the Politics section, SNP's Tony Giuliano calls for post Indy Scotland to hold EU referendum. This article is by Kathleen Nutt, journalist. A senior SNP activist has called on ministers to commit Scotland to holding a referendum and rejoining the EU within two years of independence. MSP hopeful Tony Giuliano also urged the Scottish Government to publish a blueprint by the Holyrood election next May, setting out the route the new state can take back into Europe and the single market. Its intervention came as fears intensify over the UK crashing out of the block in January, following a stalemate in the talks of a future free trade deal, and bombshell plans by Boris Johnson to rip up key parts of the treaty he signed in with Brussels. Denouncing Brexit and the damage it will do Scotland's economy, while simultaneously proclaiming our pro-European identity, is no longer enough, said Giuliano, writing in the National Today. Scotland needs a strategy on how it will rejoin the EU, or at the very least the single market, in line with just about every other country in Western Europe. Giuliano, who has worked in the European Parliament, called for ministers to create a commission for Scotland's future in Europe to be set up by the end of the year, and to publish its report in the spring. He said the body should bring together experts in European affairs from Scotland, Brussels and beyond to examine the options available to an independent Scotland, including full EU membership and 
EFTA slash EEA membership. The activist who splitting with the SNP's candidate to oust Labour's Jackie Bailey and Dumbarton and it while he has supported Scotland being a full member of the EU, it was right that the full spectrum of options was considered. The Commission support would also play its part in refreshing the SNP's now outdated policy in Europe ahead of the 2021 Scottish Parliament elections, he wrote. That refresh policy should be a clear commitment to hold a confirmatory referendum on Europe within the first two years of independence. And that piece was by Kathleen Nutt. From the National, date Wednesday the 9th of September 2020, from the news section. Tories admit they're going to break law in a limited way with Brexit power grab. By Andrew Learmonth, journalist. One of Boris Johnson's ministers has admitted that the UK government is set to break international law in a bid to override the Brexit deal. Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, shocked MPs yesterday when he said that international law would be broken in very specific and limited way. Former Prime Minister Theresa May was left incredulous, saying the move would damage the UK's reputation as a trustworthy partner among other nations. Ministers are set to add the new laws that reinterpret the Withdrawal Treaty, agreed with Brussels earlier this year, to the Internal Market Bill, due to be tabled in the Commons today. That's the same piece of legislation that's been branded a power grab by the Scottish Government. The legislation the text of which will only be seen today, is supposed to ensure goods from any nation of the UK can have unfettered access to any other nation. But the Tories have made it clear they want to change state aid rules agreed as part of the Northern Ireland Protocol, intended to prevent a return to checks at the border with the Irish Republic. Sir Bob Neill, Tory chairman of the Justice Select Committee, asked, The Secretary of State has said that he's committed and the government are committed to the rule of law. Does he recognise that adherence to the rule of law is not negotiable? Against that background, will he assure us that nothing is proposed in this legislation does or potentially might break international legal obligations or international legal arrangements which we have entered into? Lewis replied, I would say that yes, this breaks international law in a very specific and limited way. We are taking the power to disapply the EU concept of direct effect required by Article 4 in a certain, very tightly defined circumstances. There, isn't, there are clear precedents for the UK and indeed other countries to consider their international obligations as circumstances change. May said that ministers were seeking to change the operation of an agreement which the government had signed up to and Parliament had passed into UK law. Given that, how can the government reassure future international partners that the UK can be trusted to abide by the legal obligations of the agreements it signs? She asked. Natalie Luiso, a close ally of President Macron and the MEP in the Brexit Coordinating Group of the European Parliament, said, You don't break international law in a specific and limited way. You do break it or you don't. You can't be half illegal as you can't be half pregnant. The SNP's Joanna Cherry called on Richard Keane, the Lord Advocate, to follow Jones out the door. She said, Richard Keane, as the government, UK government's law officer for Scotland, stood by the prorogation of Parliament by Boris Johnson's government. That decision was found to be unlawful by a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court. Less than a year later, the UK government is intent on breaching its international treaty obligations under the withdrawal agreement. 
I would not expect law officers to remain in a post where the government they advise proposes to take unlawful action. Richard Keane should protect the integrity of Scots law and governance. He should show the same courage of his convictions as Jonathan Jones, the head of the UK's government legal division, and quit. Brexiteers defended Johnson's move, with some calling for him to go further and scrap the whole deal if the EU refused to make the concessions in a trade agreement. Ian Duncan Smith, the former party leader, said that the government was quite within its rights to revisit the withdrawal agreement. Meanwhile, Scottish Government Constitution Secretary Michael Russell said the legalisation demonstrated that the UK is not a genuine partnership of equals. This is a shabby blueprint that will open the door to bad trade deals and unleashes an assault on devolution the like of which we have not experienced since the Scottish Parliament was established. We cannot and will not allow that to happen. However, Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack claimed the legislation would respect and strengthen devolution. I hope the devolved administration will work with us, he said. And that article is by Andrew Learmonth. Recorded from the National, 10th of September 2020. Exhibition for innovative Scottish dancer Michael Clark coming to V&A, Richard Mason. An exhibition to commemorate the career of Aberdeen-born dancer Michael Clark is coming to the V&A Dundee in October 2021. As a young choreographer, Clark brought together his classical ballet training with London's punk, fashion and club culture to establish himself as one of the most innovative artists working in contemporary dance. Film, photography and material from Clark's practice will be presented at Michael Clark, Cosmic Dancer, alongside his legendary collaborations presenting him as an innovator and a defining cultural figure who has introduced contemporary dance to a wide audience. Leonie Bell, incoming director of V&A Dundee, said... Michael Clark is a truly remarkable creative force who, as a dancer and choreographer, has challenged and redefined the limits of dance and its relationship to design and its place in contemporary culture. The National Thursday the 10th of September Comment section EU chaos shows us nothing is sacred for the no-deal Brexiteers. By Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh. Back in the summer of 2019, the Business Insider magazine ran with the headline, Thank Goodness for Boris. This through the looking glass image popped back into my head this week as I watched Boris Johnson's antics over the Northern Irish withdrawal agreement. Boris has now extended his flippancy to international treaties. The Mad Hatter has finally taken over the Tea Party. This regard for protocol and law, for constructive negotiations, for honouring commitments and protecting peace shouldn't surprise us, given Bojo's record on never staying true to his word as PM, as Mayor of London and, well, as in everything that he ever does. His only constant is inconsistency. Beyond the headline, however, this report told a less than edifying story on our current Prime Minister. Business Insider recounted how Johnson's noisy no-deal Brexit shenanigans were causing ripples of joy and excitement among the serried ranks of hedge fund managers and currency traders. These unacceptable faces of capitalism were rubbing their hands with glee at all the margin trading they could engage while chaos reigned during the Brexit negotiations. For these financiers, 
the threat of no deal meant big profits and large transactions for their elite gang. A case of for the money and for the few. They know how to play the game and make some dosh while the sun shines on their avaricious corner of the world. Or, in other words, margin callers calling margins. This memory also prompted something equally depressingly familiar. Cast your mind back to that fateful night in June 2016, when the polls closed and a rather sombre-looking Nigel Farage appeared on our screens, bemoaning his and the Brexiteers' probable loss to these crazy liberal Remainers at the EU referendum. Fast forward a few hours into a dawn chorus of, by Jove, I think we've done it after all, and Farage declared, surprise, surprise, a massive victory for all those true believers in the UK's Independence Day. What happened in those intervening hours is still a matter of much debate, but what is on public record is that some of Farage's financial buddies made a massive amount of money as the market surged, then collapsed, and then regained some speed in the subsequent trading roller coaster. Filthy rich head fund manager Crispin Odi used an Italian expression to describe how he felt the day after the EU referendum. He said that for him, the morning had gold in its mouth because he'd bet £220 million on the collapse of markets if Leave won the vote. And Leave did win after all, despite Farage's protestations. More gold for Odi, base metal for everybody else. Now, with this week's Brexit revelations, I'm certain the same sections of the finance world are thanking Johnson once again. This time for the chance to line their pockets further as the UK government plays fast and loose with international treaties and Michel Barnier's patience. It all goes to show that in uncertain times, there is one solid thing we can be sure about. Nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, is sacred for the no-deal Brexiteers. Not the Northern Irish Good Friday Agreement, not the global standing of the UK, not devolution or democracy, not human rights or the rule of law, not catastrophic job losses, not the UK economy heading for a shredding, not years of deep recession blighting the future of not just our brightest and best young people, but of each and every one of us who weren't born to arbitrage and trade. Meanwhile, as the clock ticks on to January 2021, Boris's chums are impatient for further Brexit dividends and lashings and lashings of clotted cash. Just a few days ago, the aforesaid Odie, incensed by the money spent so far by the UK government supporting citizens during this unprecedented Covid pandemic, was berating politicians for their unwillingness to allow a recession. Such spoil sports. He also criticised the furlough scheme, fearing a rise in inflation affecting stock markets. He couldn't care one wee bit about people's livelihoods, losing their jobs, their homes, their health. His barefaced self-opportunism is almost too much to believe. But you'd better believe it, because we are way over the rainbow and the pots of gold have already been snazzled by Boris's pals. Johnson was quite happy to take Odie's money when he donated £10,000 to Bojo's leadership campaign last year. Now it's the margin call. And like a good little boy, Johnson responds with the big no-deal announcement because there's no such thing as a free lunch. If there is any justice, it won't be long before there's no such thing as a United Kingdom. Recorded from the National, 10th of September 2020. UK failing minority language pledges on Gaelic and Scots. Christine Patterson.
The Council of Europe has accused the UK of failing to meet key treaty obligations over Gaelic and other minority languages. In a paper released today, the Strasbourg-based body listed failings over the provision for and promotion of Scottish, Gaelic, Irish and Cornish. It also lists failures relating to the use of Scots. While the paper acknowledges that devolved administrations encourage minority language medium and minority language ed- education in almost all territories, covered by the near 20-year-old European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages, ECRML, it says there is still a need to raise up the awareness of the English-speaking majority population about the United Kingdom's regional or minority languages as an integral part of the United Kingdom's cultural heritage in particular as regards Irish, Scottish, Gaelic and Cornish. And it says teaching and study of Scots is lacking under the UK's charter obligations. The wide-ranging paper makes 20 different recommendations, with many of these relating to the use of Irish in Northern Ireland. That issue was a major obstacle in the prolonged Stormont stalemate that saw the Assembly go three years without meeting. The Council said it was removing political tensions from the promotion of Irish, still prohibited in Northern Irish courts under law set in 1737, was essential and must and more must also be done in education and the media to promote Ulster Scots, which was created by the migration of Scottish people in the 1600s. It also called for Cornwall Council to gain full membership of the British Irish Council to, use, to aid the use of Cornish, with the funding for this to be devolved to that region from London. The report said broadcasting in Welsh and Scottish Gaelic had improved, but services in the latter are still insufficient. And it said the UK is failing to fulfil its undertaking to ensure the teaching of the history and culture which is reflected by Scottish Gaelic. It also criticised the lack of newspapers in all regional or minority languages in the UK, including Manx Gaelic. On Scots, the Council says measures are needed to promote mutual understanding between all the linguistic groups of the country and on the respect and understanding and tolerance in relation to Scots, particularly in education and the mass media. Established in 1949, the Human Rights Organisation counts 47 states as members. The UK has been asked to submit evidence relating to its three main asks on Scottish Gaelic education, the use of Irish and the devolution of Cornish before the year is out. The National Thursday the 10th of September 2020 Comment section EU must think again over its shameful refugee policy by David Pratt Two news photographs published just days apart caught my eye this past week The first was an image of empty chairs, some 13,000 in all, placed outside the German Parliament building in Berlin. The chairs were a symbolic protest, with each one representing one of the refugees stuck in the hellhole that was the Moria reception camp on the Greek island of Lesbos. The human rights campaigners who carried out the protest did so in a plea for Moria and other desperately overcrowded camps like it to be shut down. But events in Moria took on an alarming turn of their own yesterday, giving rise to the second image that caught my eye. It was a picture of women and children laden with bags and a few meagre belongings fleeing the charred remains of the camp that was engulfed by fire in the early hours of yesterday morning. How many times had they picked up and carried those belongings, I couldn't help wondering, as I looked at the haggard faces in that image. 
How many times over the past year since leaving their homelands have they had to shoulder enormous burdens when faced with no choice but to escape the trauma, violence and instability that has bedeviled their lives since leaving troubled countries like Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq and Sudan, amongst others? It was only a few years ago that images of weary families trudging over the mountains and deserts of Asia, Africa and the Middle East fast became indelibly etched into our collective consciousness. These pictures too of the flimsy overcrowded dinghies and terrified families stumbling ashore also seared their way into our mind's eye here in Europe. These were scenes not witnessed since the Second World War and compelled many of us to rally to the humanitarian cause they so emotively evoked. But like the cherished family snapshots that over the years I've seen so many refugees carry with them wherever they go, these pictures that so moved us seem to have faded from our same collective consciousness. These days, after all, we have problems of our own over here to deal with in Europe in the shape of a pandemic and wrangles over an impending Brexit. That the COVID-19 virus is no respecter of refugees any more than it is anyone else seems not to have occurred to so many of us. Neither has the fact that in places like Moria, where people are crammed cheek by jowl, the luxury of clean water with which to guard against any disease is a rarity. Who cares when the current thinking about a generation of young refugees damned when the threat of organised house parties by some of our own young folk focuses our mind right now? And speaking of threats, why have so many here in the UK, both inside and outside government, relentlessly portrayed handfuls of desperate people paddling their way across the English Channel as if they were the biggest threat to Great Britain since the Spanish Armada, Napoleon's Navy or Hitler's Nazi invaders? It doesn't seem to matter that those arriving in dinghies and small boats only made up 0.59% of immigration in the UK in 2019. It gives the political right the clarion call they need. That it serves also as a convenient distraction to the political incompetency on our own doorstep also goes without saying. Not that any of this right-wing scaremongering and British patriotic outrage will mean much to those refugees who in the weeks and months ahead will still brave the English Channel, just as others do the Aegean or Mediterranean in search of a better, safer life. For those uprooted these past days from Moria, the political priorities of leaders in Britain or Europe will barely register alongside the need to find the next meal or safe bed and shelter for the night. Ignoring these pressing needs of refugees and migrants is no more an option than secretly expelling them, as the Greek government have done lately, sailing many to the edge of the country's territorial waters and abandoning them in inflatable and sometimes overburdened life rafts. Greece is not alone in such callous acts, of course. Just this week, human rights group Amnesty International in a damning report entitled Waves of Impunity, detailed how Malta is using even more despicable and illegal tactics to turn away refugees and migrants from North Africa. It tells how the island nation has arranged unlawful pushbacks to Libya, diverted migrant boats to Italy and illegally detained hundreds of people on ill-equipped offshore quarantine ferries. All this activity was going on long before COVID-19 presented itself. The rights group also criticised Maltese authorities for signing a new agreement with Libya to stop migrants and refugees leaving the conflict-ridden country. European member states 
insisted amnesty must stop assisting in the return of people to a country where they face unspeakable horrors. And this is the bottom line here. For the EU cannot continue to simply try and sweep the plight of refugees under the carpet and out of sight of public gaze. Not only is such a policy morally reprehensible, but unrealistic, given that far from receding, the flow of refugees and migrants is set only to intensify in a world where conflict, poverty and climate change leaves millions with no other option if they are to survive. As American author and journalist Sonia Shah details in her new, recent new book, The Next Great Migration, The Story of Movement on a Changing Planet. By 2045, the spread of deserts in sub-Saharan Africa is expected to compel 60 million inhabitants to pick up and leave. By 2100, rising sea levels could add another 180 million to their ranks. Put simply, our planet is changing, and so must our responses to these human beings and other species caught up in the adverse effects of that change. As the fire that destroyed Moria still smoulders, the blame game has started, with some saying local right-wing activists were responsible for starting the blaze and others blaming the refugees themselves. Whatever the cause, Moria camp is no more, and 13,000 people have once again been uprooted. It is to the shame of the European Union that they have had to suffer all over again. From the National Date, Friday the 11th of September 2020, from the news section, Alex Salmond handed deadline to submit evidence to Holyrood Inquiry by Kathleen Nutt, journalist. Alex Salmond has been given until later this month to supply potentially explosive evidence to the Holyrood Inquiry examining the Scottish Government's handling of complaints against him. The former First Minister has been asked to provide a written submission by September 23rd ahead of giving the evidence under oath to the panel of MSPs. The inquiry also said it would assess all appropriate options after Salmond offered to take Nicola Sturgeon's administration to court over her refusal to disclose key documents provided the Parliament agreed to cover its costs. The developments are contained in a letter from, from inquiry convener Linda Fabiani to Salmond's lawyer David Mickey of Glasgow firm Levy and McRae. The cross-party inquiry is looking at how the government mishandled an investigation into misconduct claims made against Salmons in 2018. He had the exercise set aside in a judicial review of the course of session, forcing ministers to admit that it had been unfair, unlawful and tainted by apparent bias. The collapse of the Scottish Government's case in January 2019 left taxpayers with a £500,000 bill for Salmon's costs and the Holyrood Inquiries investigating what happened. Sturgeon told Parliament at the time that the inquiry could have whatever material it wanted, but the Government has since withheld a number of papers. Deputy FM John Swinney said that the Vice Ministers is protected by legal privilege, while court documents belong to the court itself, not the Government. However, in a letter to the inquiry which was disclosed earlier this week, Mackey, on behalf of Salmond, said the government was able to release more than it had. He said Salmond, as the quickest and cheapest route, was willing to supply a list of documents about the judicial review so that MSPs could ask the government for them. He went on, The second option, which we were willing to undertake on behalf of the committee, 
be for Mr Salmon to return to court to seek the express consent of the court to have these documents passed to the committee. Whilst we were more than content to meet that application on behalf of the committee, we would require clarification that all legal costs would be met by the committee. In a reply issued yesterday, Fabiani said, The committee will continue to assess all appropriate options in seeking the documents and information necessary for its scrutiny. I will come back to you at a later stage to update you on, the, on its progress in this regard. The committee appreciates the complexities involved in all of this and your clients desire to see the full statements and evidence from the Scottish Government. However, the committee is also mindful of the need to progress its inquiry. To that end, we would ask your client to make a written submission to the extent to which he is able by September 23rd. The former First Minister was cleared in March of sexually assaulting nine women following a three-week trial and after his acquittal he made a statement outside the High Court in Edinburgh saying there was certain evidence he would have liked to have led but for a variety of reasons when he wasn't able to do so. He added it would be see the light of day later, suggesting once the coronavirus pandemic had subsided. The allegation of a, of a political conspiracy against Salmon formed a key plank of his defence at the former First Minister's trial. Over the summer, Sturgeon dismissed claims of a conspiracy against her predecessor as a heap of nonsense, saying she would elaborate in the future. And that piece was by Kathleen Nutt. Recorded from the National, 11th of September 2020. Voices for Scotland launch events with David Heyman and Chris Dolan. Richard Mason. Voices for Scotland is launching its online autumn programme of events this evening with a stellar lineup of iconic Scottish actor David Heyman and award winning writer Chris Dolan. The pair will discuss their careers, activism, and views on Scottish independence with Voices for Scotland chair Audrey Burt. David Heyman will also perform part of a one-man show in what is promised to be a very special and intimate event. Bert said, We're absolutely delighted to be joined by David and Chris at what will be a really thought-provoking, enlightening and interesting event. They are two people I have admired for a long time, so we're delighted they're kicking off our exciting programme of events for autumn. Voices for Scotland is people-focused, so these events are all about creating a community of ideas and interesting stories to help grow support for independence. Dolan wrote the one-man show, The Pitiless Storm, which Heyman performs in. The piece is set on the eve of the Scottish independence referendum and focuses on a left-wing trade unionist as he goes through a crisis of conscience as he is forced to question his political and moral beliefs in the face of a sea change in his country's political life. David Heyman is known for his roles in Trial and Retribution and his brace in Taboo. Chris Dolan is an award-winning novelist, poet and playwright. The event is free to view online and starts at 6pm this evening. Viewers will have an opportunity to put questions to the guests. This is Sport from The National on Friday the 11th of September 2020. Victoria Azarenka's remarkable return continues as she beats Serena Williams by Press Association. Victoria Azarenka got the better of old foe Serena Williams to reach her first Grand Slam final for seven years. 
Williams looked supreme in the first set as a US Open final rematch against Naomi Osaka beckoned, but Azarenka fought back superbly to win 1-6-6-3-6-3. Williams was not helped by a jarred ankle early in the deciding set that required heavy strapping, and her quest to equal Margaret Court's record of 24 Grand Slam singles titles goes on. Instead, it is two-time Australian Open champion Azarenka who will face Osaka in a quite remarkable story of resurgence. The 31-year-old had been a shadow of her former self since her stop-start return from maternity leave in 2017 and had almost been written off as a major contender prior to her victory on the same courts in the Western and Southern Open last month. A lengthy custody battle with her former partner over their three-year-old son Leo kept her away for several spells and took its toll on and off court, while her confidence ebbed away. This was the former world number one's first slam semi-final since her second consecutive final against Williams in New York in 2013, both of which were high-quality close affairs, but both were won by the American. But this was every bit as good, with Azarenka continuing the form that saw her lose just one game against Elise Mertens in the quarterfinals. Williams, by contrast, had survived three set battles against Sloane Stevens, Maria Sakari, and Svetlana Pironkova, but crushed any suggestion of vulnerability in a pulsating start. Azarenka helped her with a nervy first service game, and Williams needed no second invitation to crush her opponent's weaker second serve. In no time, she was four love up, and in just 34 minutes, she wrapped up the opening set. It seemed a minor setback when Williams missed the chance to break for two love in the second set, but that gave Azarenka a foothold and she grabbed it, playing a superb return game to move 3-2 in front. Azarenka's backhand in particular was really firing now, and she began to dictate from the middle of the court, marching to her chair after breaking for a second time to win the set. Suddenly it was Williams needing to change the momentum, and what she certainly did not need was an injury to her troublesome ankles. The 38-year-old clutched her left ankle as Azarenka made it juice in the second game of the deciding set, and the Belarusian broke after a lengthy medical timeout. Williams threw everything she had at Azarenka as she tried to claw her way back into the match, her screams reverberating around the empty Arthur Ashe Stadium. But Azarenka held her nerve superbly and got the sweetest of rewards, sealing victory with an ace for her first win over Williams at a slam in 11 tries. And that article was by Press Association 2020. From the National, date Friday the 11th of September 2020. From the politics section... Thousands urged BBC to reverse decision to stop airing Nicholas Sturgeon's briefings by Laura Webster, multimedia journalist. More than 10,000 people have signed a petition urging the BBC to reverse its decision to stop broadcasting the Scottish Government's daily coronavirus updates. Last night it emerged that the broadcaster will no longer show all of Nicholas Sturgeon's briefings and instead provide coverage of conferences based on their editorial merit. The briefing will continue to be streamed by the Scottish Government online. The BBC stressed it would take a consistent approach to the coverage of the various governments' briefings across the UK nations. It comes after Labour and Tory politicians complained to the broadcaster that they are indulging the First Minister by showing her party political broadcasts. 
Scottish ministers have always denied there being any political elements of the briefings, calling these claims pathetic. Now a change.org position aims to bring 7,500 signatures to show the public demand for the briefings to continue as the UK sees a rise in coronavirus cases. Laura McNeill launched the petition, writing The Scottish Government COVID-19 briefings have been, and still are, an essential tool in dealing with this public health crisis used to convey important information to the people of this country. To deny that is to put the country at a serious risk. We have no control over broadcasting rights and no national media, and not everyone has access to the internet. The BBC are causing an issue where the only one should be that of public health. Let them know you will not accept this. Please sign and share. At the time of writing, more than 10,000 people have signed a petition calling for the change in just a few hours. The BBC's decision has sparked outrage, with politicians, public health experts and members of the public speaking out against it. A BBC Scotland spokesman said, We will continue to provide extensive coverage of the government press conferences across our news services, including live streaming online. We will of course consider showing press conferences live when any major developments or updates are anticipated. And that piece was by Laura Webster. Recorded from the National, 11th of September 2020. SNP MSP has the perfect response as Ruth Davidson takes new job at LBC. Laura Webster. News that Ruth Davidson has taken on a new job as LBC radio host and podcaster hasn't gone down too well this morning. Maybe it's the fact that the former Scottish Tory leader is already gearing up to take her new job in the House of Lords. Maybe it's the fact she earned £7,500 on top of her Hollywood salary to commentate on ITV's election night coverage. Maybe it's the scandal involving her accepting a PR job worth £50,000 a year on top of her MSP role, then deciding not to take it after all. Whatever it is, people just aren't that impressed with the MSP accepting yet another role. Davidson has been criticised for what opponents see as a lack of constituency surgeries in the past with SNP MP Joanna Cherry taking aim at the MSP's woefully constituents working rate. Now MSP Jenny Gilruth has brought the row back with her quip about Davidson's new Sunday night radio show An Inconvenient Ruth. The mid-fife and Glenroth's MSP reposted LBC's announcement adding at least her constituents will know where to contact her for an appointment now. Davidson will have a former PM, Tony Blair, on the show as the first guest to be interviewed. Davidson, who is donating the profits to charity Maggie's in Edinburgh, said, Some politicians take time out at weekends by hitting the gym, reading books or going hillwalking. I'm excited to spend an hour on LBC talking to fascinating people about their life, their work and the change they're making to the world. From scientists to celebrities, artists to athletes and all sorts of world-beating figures in between. I'll be asking them to share their story, the hard times as well as the good. It should make absorbing listening. Can't say we'll be tuning in. From the National Day, Friday the 11th of September 2020, from the news section, Mercy Baguma, candlelit vigil to be held in memory of asylum seeker mum, by Jane Cassidy 
The Partner of Mercy Bagumma will hold a candlelit vigil tomorrow in memory of the mother found dead in her Glasgow flat near her baby son. Charity Positive Action and Housing say Bagumma's body will be flown to her native Uganda tomorrow for burial. The vigil has been held at Elder Park Boating Pond in Govan at 3pm because her partner Eric Nana and their son Adriel are unable to travel to Uganda. Bagumma, 34, who was seeking asylum in the UK, died in Glasgow last month. Her body was found in the hallway of her flat in August 22, with her son, Adriel, alone in his cot. Nana, 30, said he had last heard from her four days earlier and called the police to force open the door after hearing his son crying inside. He said it was a miracle the baby survived. Positive Action in Housing said in a statement, Elder Park is a place that Bagumma loved. She and Eric spent some happy days there with baby Adriel. Bagumma's death has prompted calls for reform of the asylum system in the UK. Positive Action in Housing is calling for a public inquiry into her death and those of other asylum seekers in Glasgow, as well as into asylum seeker accommodation in the city. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said she was consumed with sadness and anger at the death of that wholesale reform of the asylum system is needed, starting from the principle of dignity, of empathy and of support for our fellow human beings. The Home Office said it will investigate Bagumma's case. And that article is by Jean Cassidy. This is Sport from The National on Friday the 11th of September 2020. FIFA approves app for professional players to report match-fixing approaches by Press Association. World governing body FIFA has approved an app designed to help professional players report match-fixing approaches. The Red Button app, which is owned by World Players Union FIFPro, will be distributed to players globally via national unions such as England's Professional Footballers Association, PFA. It complements existing reporting tools set up by FIFA, and information received via the app will be investigated by the World Governing Bodies Integrity Department. The Europol agency reported in August that football is the sport which is most heavily targeted by criminals involved in fixing. Thief Pro's legal director, Roy Vermeer, said, We are confident this will strengthen the hand of football and public authorities in the fight against match-fixing. With players facing disciplinary action for failing to report a match-fixing approach, there must be a way for them to do this without fear that they are putting themselves, their families and their careers in danger. The Red Button app provides this facility and will help players manage this considerable risk that, through no fault of their own, might confront them at any time. And that article was by Press Association 2020. From the National Date, Friday the 11th of September 2020, from the Politics section, Christina McKelvey pledges to fight in 2021 as India has never been closer. This article is an exclusive by Kirsten Patterson, journalist. Scottish Government Minister Christina McKelvey predicted that independence is coming soon today as she states her claim in the 2021 election. The Older People and Equalities Minister wants to run again next year 
and says an SNP majority will make NDF2 unavoidable. While 14 of the Scottish Parliament's current SNP cohort have said they'll stand down at the poll, McKelvey, who was first elected in 2007, has confirmed she'll seek re-selection as candidate for Hamilton, Lark Hall and Stonehouse. Paying tribute to the countless activists in the independence cause, the former trade unionist said the Yes movement has never been closer to achieving its goal. She stated, The COVID-19 pandemic has shown how important it is that decisions about Scotland's future are made in Scotland. The last seven polls have shown that Scottish independence is fast becoming the established position of the people of Scotland. McKelvey, whose partner is SNP Deputy Leader, Keith Brown, also headed at Boris Johnson's internal market bill, described the Labour-run Welsh Government as an attack on democracy that risks the future of the Union by stealing powers from devolved administrations. Referencing the SNP's historic 1967 Hamilton by-election win by Winnie Ewing, she stated, We must work together and focus all our efforts in the election in 2021 to achieve this future. By putting Scotland's right to choose at the heart of that campaign, we can turn the popular support for independence into an unavoidable demand for a second referendum. A referendum we will win. Let us honour the foundation that Winnie Young and countless other activists have laid for us. We can achieve the dream that they have worked so hard for. Independence is coming and it is coming soon. And that piece was an exclusive by Kirsten Patterson. From the National, date Friday the 11th of September 2020. From the news section, Asta, Aldi, Tesco, Sainsbury's and Morrison's update shoppers on rules in store. By Chris Tatum, Trending Today editor. Some of the biggest supermarket chains including Asda, Aldi, Tesco, Sainsbury's and Morrison's have updated shoppers on the coronavirus rules in stores. It comes ahead of a change in the law for those in England from Monday, September 14th. On Tuesday, Prime Minister Boris Johnson confirmed that gatherings of six or more people in England will be banned in law and those caught breaking the rules will be issued with a £100 fine. In Scotland, similar rules and social gatherings were announced by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon on Thursday and came into effect that same day. In Wales, face masks will become compulsory in shops and indoor spaces from Monday, September 14th, the First Minister Mark Drakeford said on Friday, September 11th. What do the new rules mean about shopping? The changes mean you won't be able to go shopping in groups of more than six people. What about household bubbles? Those who have a household bubble which is bigger than six people will be able to go shopping together. What about the supermarket chains doing? As a result, a number of the biggest supermarket companies have put together their own rules exactly on how many people can shop together at one time. We've rounded up the latest rules at those supermarkets. What are ASDA doing? A statement on ASDA's website states, The government's new rules and face coverings in England were introduced on July 24th and all customers are required to wear a face mask covering when they visit one of our stores. Face coverings are also mandatory in Scottish stores and it is a requirement that customers who choose to wear a visor must also wear a face covering. 
On Friday, August 7th, the Northern Ireland Executive also made it mandatory for customers to wear face coverings in shops, including Asda stores. Although face coverings are not mandatory in Wales, we would strongly recommend that customers visiting our stores wear a face covering to help keep everyone safe. In England and the devolved nations, customers can enter Asda stores without a face covering if there is a medical condition or an invisible disability that prevents them from wearing a covering. To help our customers adjust to the new rules and in case someone forgets to bring their own covering, packets of disposable masks are available in every store and can be opened and worn while shopping with us before, before paying for these details. Keeping our customers and colleagues safe has been a priority throughout lockdown and this remains unchanged as social distancing measures are gradually eased. As parts of the UK refine their safety measures and new changes are implemented, we continue to support those across our stores in England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. Aldi Aldi's website states, In accordance with the recent government announcements, from the 10th of July in Scotland and the 24th of July in England, it will be mandatory for all customers, with certain exceptions, shopping in our stores to wear a face covering for the duration of their visit. We thank you for your cooperation. Tesco Tesco says shoppers need, a fa- need to wear a face covering in store, but staff won't be policing the rules. Further details on Tesco's website states, Where necessary, we'll limit the four people coming into our stores to make sure they don't get too busy. Hand sanitizers are being placed around the stores for customers and colleagues to use, as well as extra cleaning products to wipe down your trolley or basket. Please try to shop on your own to help reduce the number of people in store at any one time. We understand that this is not always possible, so if you need to bring children with you or shop with a carer, you're welcome to do so. Sainsbury's In a statement on their website, Sainsbury's said, Please follow official guidelines in your local area and wear a face covering when shopping in our stores in England and Scotland. We have limited the number of people in our stores and at our ATMs at any one time. We have also put queuing systems in place outside stores, and ask you to queue at a safe distance of two metres apart. Please try to keep a safe distance from other customers, from our colleagues when you're trying your shop. We have placed clear markings in shop floors to help you know what a safe distance is. We are asking everyone to only send one adult per household to our shops. This helps us keep people a safe distance apart and also helps to reduce queues to get into stores. Our store teams will be asking groups with more than one adult to choose one adult to shop and we will ask other adults to wait. Children are welcome if they are not able to stay at home. However, Sainsbury's have said they won't be challenging those who don't wear a mask. In a tweet, the company said, We won't be challenging customers without a mask when they enter or when they are in store since they may have a reason not to wear a mask. Morrison's Morrison's are encouraging shoppers to wear face masks in their stores. For those who forget to bring one and wear it, staff will be handing out free ones to customers. While signage will be displayed across the store, staff won't be placing in the, the rule. Iceland A statement on Iceland's website states, Face coverings are now mandatory for all customers in retail stores in Scotland and in England, with the exception of those exempted from wearing them, in accordance with the latest government advice, such as people with relevant health conditions and children under the age of 11. Regarding face mask rules, the supermarket chain added that staff won't be challenging shoppers who don't wear them. 
No, we're not asking our colleagues to police the system in our stores. We recognise that not all exemptions from the guidance are visible. Therefore, we trust our customers to adhere to the rules around mandatory face coverings and shop with us in a safe and responsible way. Our colleagues continue to show incredible dedication to keeping the nation fed and ensuring the safety of each other and our customers. And that piece was by Chris Tatum. From the National, date Friday the 11th of September 2020. From the news section, BBC to stop broadcasting all of Nicola Sturgeon's coronavirus briefings. By Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. BBC Scotland has been furiously condemned for its decision to stop broadcasting all of the First Minister's coronavirus briefings after caving into pressure from the Scottish Tories. As of Monday, it is understood the Corporation will decide whether to provide live television coverage of the press conference based on their editorial merit. It says it will continue streaming the briefings, which contain crucial information for the public to play its role in containing the virus, live on its news website. The briefings are currently shown live on BBC One Scotland and the BBC Scotland channel, with some coverage also included as part of BBC Radio Scotland's lunchtime live programme. But the corporation has taken the decision to scale this back, despite the fact that the BBC Scotland television channel tends to air a few shows before 7pm other than briefings and First Minister's questions, opting instead to broadcast adverts for its programmes. After the decision sparked a furious backlash, we put several questions to the broadcaster. 1. Who made this decision? 2. Was the new Tory Director General involved in making this decision? 3. Why has it been made now, when coronavirus cases are on the increase? 4. What evidence is the decision based on and were medical experts consulted? 5. What impact could this have on suppressing the virus? A BBC Scotland spokesperson told The National... We will continue to provide extensive coverage of the government press conferences across our news services, including live streaming online. We will of course consider showing press conferences live when any major developments or updates are anticipated. The corporation also insisted that all editorial decisions are made locally. However, broadcaster and former television executive Stuart Cosgrove said the decision does not make any sense. The former Channel 4 chief, who co-hosts BBC Scotland's show Off the Ball, told The National, At a time when Scotland is witnessing a new rise in Covid cases and the restrictions are more complex to communicate, I'm baffled as to why these publicly valuable briefings are to discontinue. Professor James Mitchell, a public policy expert at Edinburgh University, added, This is a strange time to abandon public broadcasts in Covid. At such a critical point when the public needs to be kept fully and speedily informed of any changes, it's simply not the time to do this. The BBC insists it will take a consistent approach to coverage of the various government briefings across the UK nations. It comes after Scottish Labour and Tory MSPs have complained that the corporation was indulging Sturgeon by broadcasting the so-called party political broadcasts. The accusations were branded pathetic by the Scottish Government. Reacting to yesterday's bombshell announcement, the SNP's Alex Kerr asked 
How can BBC Scotland News possibly justify dropping the daily Scottish government briefings just as we are seeing positive cases of coronavirus begin to rise? Now more than ever, it is so important that we are getting clear government guidance out to the public to stop the spread of COVID. Outraged viewers took to social media to vent their frustrations. Hazel McDonald tweeted, What? Just as the infection rates are rising again at BBC Scotland News, this is a disgrace. Stopping a vital daily briefing during a pandemic would change the public health message, which is so badly needed. Simon Barrow added, This is an appalling decision at BBC Scotland News. Public service broadcasting should prioritise public information during a pandemic rather than appeasing those who are trying to politicise this. Doris Bruce commented, Appalling that a public health matter should be treated like this. Shows just how low the Tories and the BBC will sink. The Scottish Government said the press conferences will continue as normal. A spokesperson stated, We will continue to carry out briefings to communicate key public health messages. These are carried in full in Scottish Government channels and will continue to be available to all broadcasters. And that piece was by Angus Cochrane. From the National Date Friday the 11th of September 2020 From the Politics section Health and Care Bodies urge BBC to reinstate government Covid briefings By Laura Webster, multimedia journalist Health and Care representatives in Scotland have called on the BBC to reinstate broadcasts of the Scottish Government's Covid-19 briefings Last night, a Mercer broadcaster would no longer air all of the First Minister's coronavirus updates, instead picking which ones to show on an, an editorial basis. The decision has prompted outrage from politicians and members of the public, as well as health and care bodies. A petition calling for the BBC to reverse the decision has gained more than 10,000 signatures, while hashtag BBC Scotland switch off is trending on Twitter, having been mentioned more than 11,000 times. Scottish Collaboration for Public Health Research and Policy, SCPHRP, a research centre at Edinburgh University, focused on public health matters, has called on the broadcaster to pull a U-turn. They told BBC Scotland, As a public health organisation, we strongly disagree with your decision to remove the daily briefings. People use them to make informed decisions about hashtag COVID-19. Please reinstate them. Meanwhile, Dr Donald McCaskill, CEO of Scottish Care, said he was very disappointed that in the midst of the largest public health emergency ever that BBC Scotland had decided to cut back coverage. He added that older people especially depend on the information provided at the conferences and called to move to access broadcast yet another example of age discrimination during the crisis. Deputy FM John Sweeney spoke out against the move this morning, calling it a Matter of regret. He told Good Morning Scotland, I think it's been a really important channel of public communication for the Scottish Government and the First Minister to be able to speak directly to members of the public about the very difficult issues with which we are wrestling now. It's an important channel because we need to ensure public compliance to the measures that were taken so we need to get these messages out. It's been a crucial part of the communication and I would like to see it continue to be broadcast on BBC Scotland channels because of the importance of getting that message directly to members of the public.
after the decision was announced last night, a BBC spokesperson said, We will continue to provide an extensive coverage of the government press conferences across all our news services, including live streaming online. We will, of course, consider showing press conferences live when any major developments or updates are anticipated. And that piece was by Laura Webster. From the National, Friday the 11th of September 2020, from the Politics section. John Swinney urges BBC to keep showing crucial COVID-19 briefings. By Laura Webster, multimedia journalist. Deputy First Minister John Sweeney has urged the BBC to continue broadcasting the Scottish Government's coronavirus briefings. Last night it emerged the Corporation was stopping Nicola Sturgeon's daily updates, saying it will choose which conferences to show based on editorial merit. The decision has provoked anger, with nearly 7,000 people signing a petition demanding the decision be reversed, and politicians, health experts and members of the public speaking out. Asked about the decision to stop broadcasting the briefings on Good Morning Scotland, Swinney said they are a crucial part of the communication around the pandemic. He told listeners, I think it's a matter of regret. I've seen a lot of commentary from people who are talking about it, for example, older people who maybe don't have access to internet technology, who actually looked to the briefing to give them clarity about what is happening in relation to coronavirus. I think it's been a really important channel of public communication for the Scottish Government and the First Minister to be able to speak directly to members of the public about the very difficult issues with which we're wrestling now. It's an important channel because we need to ensure public compliance to the measures that were st- that we were taking, so we need to get these messages out. It's been a crucial part of the communication and I would like to see it continue t- to be broadcast on BBC Scotland channels because of the importance of getting that message directly to members of the public. He stressed how important the information is, telling the programme. We saw a good example of it yesterday. We were promoting through all of our media output the Test and Protect app, and in the course of a day, over half a million people in Scotland have downloaded that app to use as part of contact tracing. A BBC spokesperson said, we will continue to provide extensive coverage of the government press conferences across our news services, including live streaming online. We will, of course, consider showing, pieces, showing press conferences live when any major developments or updates are anticipated. And that piece was by Laura Webster. this week's national thank you for listening 